Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, and we are an award-winning, chart-topping podcast, or many call us an oddcast, for those who value real, different dialogues about how to build a legendary business and a legendary life. Today, we continue our run of best-selling extraordinary authors. My dear friend, collaborator, and a guy I consider a brother from another mother, Kevin Maney, is here. And Kevin is a legendary technology executive who's covered tech for over 25 years uh, for outfits like USA Today, Newsweek, and many others. He's the co-author of my first book, Play Bigger, How Pirates, Dreamers, and Innovators Create and Dominate Markets. And if you've read that book, here's what I'll tell you. Kevin was the X Factor. (laughs) Today, he writes for strategy and business, and he's also the co-founder of Category Design Advisors, where he helps companies, you guessed it, create and dominate new categories. Most importantly, Kevin's one of the smartest, most genuine people I know, and he's got a brilliant new book out with his co-authors called Unhealthcare, a manifesto for health assurance. And we have a fascinating conversation about how technology is driving a massive shift from traditional approaches to healthcare, which Kevin sort of uh, frames as sick care, to a new category that he and his co-authors call health assurance. And um, so we talk about that and all the cool things going on in that area. And Kevin and I are are good friends. Uh, We chase a few zebras down a few rabbit holes holes as well. I think you're going to love this one. Go to lockhead.com, subscribe to our newsletter. And for some powerful insights into how leading businesses are navigating these crazy times, visit netsuite.com slash different. You see, NetSuite surveyed hundreds of business leaders and assembled a playbook on the top strategies they're using today called Seven Actions Businesses Need to Take Now. So you can pick that up and schedule your free product tour of NetSuite by Oracle, which is the world's number one cloud business system. So visit netsuite.com slash different right now. And in a crisis, legendary organizations turn data into doing. And Splunk is the leader in a category called data to everything. Splunk helps you bring data to every question, every decision, and every action. Visit splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E, and learn how to bring data to everything. That's splunk.com slash D to E. Now, hey ho, let's go. Well, it's great to see you, Kev. Same. Same. I'm sorry it's not in person. We got to do that before. It's like I'm getting sick of this, like, long-distance Zoom fucking shit. It's just... It, it, it really... There is this thing called Zoom fatigue. It's real, isn't it? Yeah. Like, yeah. what's the longest you've gone in one, one day, can you think? Uh, in one session or... or just in, in one or day. Multiple. A time spent in one day on Zoom or what the equivalent. I mean, I mean, I've had days where I've had four Zoom meetings and, you know, to- total up to six hours or something. And that's just brutal. Yeah. And I know people doing eight to 10 hours on Zoom. I've never done that much, but... No, I have never done that much. I did four hours the other day sort of straight, you know, with a pee break in between. But I mean, shit, I was, and it was one where I had to pay attention. Like I couldn't just like, cause I was part of this discussion. Right. Uh, right. And so you can't, 
you know, there's certain meetings where you can phone it in a little, but particularly given what you and I tend to do, we don't really go to phone it in meetings, right? So you sort of have to be paying attention. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Early on, uh, Mike and I tried to do, we, uh, you know, we did the first sort of trial of a category design, you know, gig with a company and doing it by Zoom. And it was a little bit of a friends and family kind of thing. So it was less pressure on it. Good way to test it out. But we tried to basically do what we would normally do, but do it on Zoom, which involves like these six hour sessions or whatever. And immediately realized can't do it. We've had to break them all up into like hour and a half, two hour sessions and do more of them or something because it just doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. But the interesting thing I wonder if we'll move to, and and I think we probably will, and, and in some ways maybe we, maybe well, as I'm thinking out loud, further along than I'm giving us credit for as I'm thinking this through, but go from using the new technology, the new medium uh, as a way to take the old way of having a meeting and just doing it digitally, which is sort of what most of us have been doing, I think. And, but then to go beyond that and start thinking about, okay, well, wait a minute, how can we actually leverage a technology to do something different? So we're not just, mm-hmm. tech, we're not throwing the technology on the old meeting. Am I making any sense here? <laughs> no, no, you, no, this is exactly, I, I agree with you. It's, it's like, you know, the classic of when, you know, radio went to TV, right? You know, first they're just doing TV shows that were basically radio plays with, you know, with, with the camera on one one camera and then over time they start figuring out they can do two and three camera shoots and create something completely different and but yeah i I agree i think that's what's going to happen people will figure out that there's a way to use zoom to create a meeting that's a different thing than a meeting in person well and um uh, I've had Eric Yuan on the podcast a couple times the founder of zoom yeah I i listen to those they're good well, and I'm very excited. Um, I, I hope it happens. His schedule's crazy, but uh, I'm doing this new podcast series with Naveen Chada at uh, at Mayfield and called Conscious VC because he's very passionate about this idea of conscious capital that companies should be about more than just making money. Making money important, making a difference also important. And so he wanted to have a big sort of thoughtful discussion with a series of folks. Anyway, long long story uh, longer. Uh, we currently have Eric booked to come on Conscious VC with us. Oh, really? Great. Uh, and I had him on shortly after the IPO last year. Mm-hmm. But anyway, long story, even longer. One of the things that Eric said when he first said it, it kind of knocked me over, but it makes sense, was their vision was to do exactly that, was to change the what a meeting was, to make it meaningfully different in a way that was a, a big step forward. Yeah, yeah. I remember, because I, I remember talking about, like, I thought remarkably doing, like, doing the whole IPO roadshow by Zoom, where we refused to go in person, and I, you know, that, that, that was awesome. It, it kind of fits, right? And, yeah. I mean, hard not to call him a visionary now, right? <laughs> yep. I mean, look, we're, we're having this massive, uh, I don't know exactly how many IPOs are on the docket, but... Um, I think it's double digit in, in the next little bit here. Tech IPOs. Yeah, they're, they're, they're all trying to get in before the massive stock market crash that's likely to happen. <laughs> well, well, there's that. We can talk about that in a second. God, I hope you're wrong. But, but I talked to uh, one of the company. I, I have a friend who's who's taking his company public in this in this current uh, 
in this current climate. And uh, yeah, he was describing that to me. I mean, absolutely no person in-person meetings. It's all on Zoom. And he's doing 12-hour mm -hmm. days on uh, Zoom, he and the CFO. And I guess they have other a couple of exec other executives participating. But it's the IPO roadshow uh, from your bathroom or your, your bedroom or yeah. <laughs> your home office <laughs> or yeah. your car or wherever you are. Exactly. So why do you think the, the market's going to crash? I well, for one thing, it's just, I mean, the that just doesn't make sense, right? I mean, the stock market is not reality anyway. It's a it's a greater fool market, and um, right now there's no other. I mean, there, I, I get it. There's no place smart to put your money in this economy, so it's seems to all be heading there. But when the last buyer, you know, hmm. when the, when the last buyer runs out of money. Um, and, uh, you know, the, 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 the pyramid starts coming down. I mean, it's, I think it's going to be swift and fast because it's just the, the pricing is just out of whack with what's going on in the economy. So it does seem weirdly disconnected, right? Yeah. There's also something actually, I was dying to share this with you. Uh, our mutual friend, Eddie Yoon discovered this and, um, and I thought it really underscores category you know, strategy and, and the sort of the reality of category queens and kings. As of August 9th, 2020, I wanted to grab this to read it properly to you. 2% of the S&P 500 accounted for 29% of the total market cap of the S&P 500. Mm -hmm. So just make it simple. 2% equal 30% of the entire market yeah. cap. And guess who those kinds of companies are? Amazon, Google, Apple, Microsoft. Right. Apple's a $2 trillion market cap company. Yeah. They went from 1 trillion to 2 trillion in what felt like a nanosecond. Right. Um, right. But the interesting thing is it's the digital category queens and kings. And so the, that category king economics that we introduced is playing out at mass scale right now. Absolutely. Yep. And so it's, it's, I guess it's just disproportionate The the Delta between the winners and the losers is disproportionate. That's what it's looking like. I don't know. I'm no financial yeah. analyst. No, it's true. But I mean, that's, you don't have to be, it's a pretty simple prospect. I mean, it, you know, as, as we've written about, I mean, it is in digital markets, especially it's a winner take all proposition. And so whoever's the winner is going to walk away with enormous amounts of the, uh, you know, the economics of that category. Right. And Everybody else has left to pick up the scraps. Yeah. And I mean, that's the frothiness in the IPO market. Mm -hmm. But you yeah. think it's overdone. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, the thing I wonder about is, I, I don't know if the people who read the Wall Street Journal read their local newspaper or, or, <laughs> or, or the equivalent websites or the equivalent Facebook feeds or the equivalent wherever you get your news. But there's a disconnect the number of people filing for unemployment is staggering. The number of companies going out of business is stunning and 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 terrifying. You know, when you hear things like 50% of restaurants might go down. Mm -hmm. And you so, know, so you think about that in terms of like the then the you know, then the stock market doing what it's doing and making, you know, trying to trying to make any sense of that. Well, okay, so if people don't have money to spend spend and businesses increasingly go out of business and they're not spending money and taxpayer basement but you know it's it's all spiraling downwards so who's buying the stuff that the you know i mean over the long run 
you know, this, this, the stocks have to be tied to some kind of economic reality. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how is it possible that all of these companies' businesses just keep going up and up and up? I mean, certainly some, I mean, some benefit. I mean, Zoom obviously is a good example because it's as long as we're stuck in our homes and not going to offices, that's, uh, you know, we're going to have to spend money on that. And there was a great phrase uh, that uh, I, first, I first encountered in uh, one of the books, Al Frank. I remember Al Frank and the senator who yes. got had to quit. Who was very funny before he got in trouble. It, it was very funny. It was very I'm funny. I'm not sure what he did. It was, you know, I don't know, whatever. Is, I met anyway, you a jury there. But, I should but anyway, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, he's talking about this phrase. We, we, you know, we, all, uh, we all do better when we all do better. Yeah. And if, if the economy is really about activity, then the more people that have money in their pockets and are, and, and are able to be active in the economy, the better the economy is going to be. And the, so it, conversely, if we're at a period of time when we're, when the, when more people than ever are not doing better, you can't make the argument to me that the economy is going to do better. It's, it's just not. It seems hard over time. And it's, look, again, of course, you know, I'm no economist, but it seems like to the, to the Al Franken quote, when we have a strong middle class, when the American dream feels like and in actuality based on data is a reality for people who are willing to go for it, we all do better. Right. Right. And, and, and look, let's not be stupid. The U.S. economy is predicated on the strength of the American consumer. Yep. Somebody at the end of the day has to buy some shit. There is no B to B unless there's a B to C somewhere along the line. I think I don't know. Right? There's right. got to be an end right. consumers. <laughs> right. Exactly. Now, the one other element of this, and sort of, I don't know if it's the flip side, but it's I think at least worth teasing out with you is, of course, a big part of what drives stock price market cap is category potential. Right? How big do they think this could potentially be? And Apple's a two trillion dollar company, not because of what they did last quarter, but because of what people believe they can do going forward over some period of time. So they're getting paid for a future that people think is coming. They don't pay you for the past, actually. They pay you for a future. And the, the past only gives them comfort that you can execute the future, if I'm mm. making any sense. And so yep. so in a world where Instacart is hiring, you know, I think I heard 100,000 people and another 250,000 people at Amazon and huge numbers at Walmart and, and, and so forth and so on. What I wonder about is sort of the two ways I've thought about it is we're living in a cocoon time. That's one kind of metaphor. Or if you think about it in category from a category design lens perspective, there's this massive set of from twos. There are these Frodo's that are, that are going. And so there's maybe a trough that's going to happen as things move from the way it is to the way it's going to be through this cocoon time, if you allow me to swizzle all the metaphors up. And so the question would be, A, do you think that's true? And if it is, um, when we get to some kind of stable two state, is the, is the middle class healthier or less healthy? Um, <laughs> I wonder if those are two different trajectories, though. That um, I mean, I think you're, I, I'd agree with you about, um, you know, this is some kind of... A, a a highly turbocharged sped up transition time all the stuff that was beginning to happen before covid is getting accelerated and so and we can i know we 
going to talk about healthcare in a bit. Um, and, you know, that's it, certainly We're certainly on the agenda, there. isn't it? <laughs> we're, you know, it's on the agenda somewhere, I would say. But I, I see I'm finding a way to kind of, you know, give us a, a lifeline. <laughs> back. back. Um, hey, I haven't talked to you for a while. I got a lot I want to talk to you about. I know. I know. <laughs> and so um, I, I do believe that there's there's a whole lot of new and interesting things that are going to you know, happen and be embraced by consumers and users and businesses. And, and it's going to build these, all these new hundred billion dollar businesses at the outside of when the trough comes back up. I, I agree whether the middle class is part of that or not, I think is uh, um, a whole different question. And um, that, I worry about that. And I worry yeah. about, um, I mean, for like sort of, duh obvious reasons the inequities for our uh, sisters and brothers of color i mean it's it, it's clear this stuff cannot continue it's clear that more wealth at the top and less wealth at the bottom and in the middle can't continue it's clear that um you know more african-american businesses failing than than caucasian businesses can't isn't sustainable it's not sustainable that that businesses owned by women of color and by women are suffering in this uh, situation much more than other businesses comparatively based on the data, et cetera, et cetera. So this sort of equal access to opportunity needs to become an agenda item. That, that's how it feels to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, it's interesting. So you're talking about uh, the guy at Mayfield who's Naveen thinking about that um i you know i have I've this long working relationship with um with Hamant tunisia at uh, general catalyst we're actually embarking on a huge project that has uh, around the this idea of you know i mean call it what you will conscious capital of responsible innovation and all these other terms that are getting thrown around call it all those things uh, I, I love that we're talking about it well but this is this is a remarkable thing is that i've never heard more people talking about it you know, the um, the VC community is starting to realize it. Fortune 500 companies are starting to realize it. I mean, you look at that business council letter that was published about you know, a year ago or so that, um, you know, the Milton Friedman, uh, you know, shareholders above all policy is uh, basically no good anymore. Mm-hmm. It's not serving either business or the public or society well. Um, and, and that conversation, I mean, it's, it's taken on a, a whole new level of, of involvement that I, I've never heard before. And it's easy to think that maybe this is like, just, it's a lot of talk that puts a sheen on, on what's going on underneath, but I'm not sure. I don't think it is this time. It might actually have some teeth. I think it does. And I, I, I've been so, sort of very much looking forward to bouncing this off you. And it's an insight that comes from our friend um, Peggy Burke, the legendary mm. designer. And so I think there's a generational shift that's happened maybe in business, but certainly in our world, the tech world, Silicon Valley, if, if you call Silicon Valley an idea, not, not a place anymore. And that is there's been a generational shift in the last plus or minus 10 years. So guys like you and I are the emerging new elders and the entrepreneurs are many, many of them are millennials. Mm -hmm. 
And so you have a new set of sort of emerging elders and you have a new set of emerging younger entrepreneurs and they're both influencing each other. And I think in this regard, positively, I think the younger generation is is influencing us to be more tuned into some of this. And I think that's very powerful and awesome. And I also think it feels like there's enough of us who feel like we want to make a difference at least as much as we want to make money. And for some of us, we've made our money and we're more focused on making a difference. But wherever you are in that spectrum, that the new emerging group of elders is in this place where they really want to make a contribution back. And interestingly, and probably more importantly, the new group of entrepreneurs are saying, we want to create companies that make money and do good at the same time. And whether you call it double bottom line or whether you call it conscious capital or whether, whatever you want to call it, there's a lot. And I think all the names are worth playing with because I, I, love, I love the languaging. But, but you have entrepreneurs who are saying, hey, look, I, I want to do more than just make money. We want to make money, but we realize there's a bigger thing here we're up to. Yep. Yeah. I think that's right. And by the way, it's, it's, it's not just, so my, I, my other, um, I have two, two kind of big engagements going on in my life right now. And one was with Haymont around this, some of these ideas we're talking about. And another is with the giant c- company Corning, Corning Glass, right? One of the coolest companies of all time, probably, right? Here's a company that's 160 years old, um, and it has has managed to come up with giant category creation innovations maybe two times a decade for 160 years. <laughs> and when it has a conversation about like what our how our company operates and what our flywheels and all that kind of stuff, the conversation is about how do we do this for another 150 years? Right. And so now that I, I'm sort of rummaging around inside of this company and really finding out how they think, it's interesting because they're on the same trend. I mean, actually, you might be able to argue that, you know, they've been living this for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. But, but what they want to voice to the world now is exactly the same thing as the, the, now the, you know, the VCs and the millennials are coming to, which is that, you know, that we have to operate with a much longer view. We have to, um, we have to uh, operate in a way that is um, significant to the communities we operate in and the employees we employ and the suppliers that we work with and that, as it is to the shareholders who, you know, and, and, uh, um, and, and interesting as a result, Corning stock price has probably never been what it would be if it operated as total, like we're going to, you know, just operate to make as much money as we possibly can. So it's an interesting, um, uh, bookend to the conversation going on in startups that this 150 year old, you know, fortune 500 stalwart is doing this in the same mindset. Well, and it's, I don't know, you're triggering another thought in my head, which is, um, this ongoing horrible reality of what Boeing has become. Mm -hmm. And the more we learn about how disgusting it was that the CEO of Boeing is lobbying the president personally as this is going on to get the FAA to leave them alone. And 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 so it just look, all I know is what I read in the papers. So I clearly wasn't in the meetings, but the the sense you get from consuming what's been reported 
is that this is a company that lost its way. This is a company that felt like it was in a race with Airbus. This was in a company, this was a company that was focused primarily on one outcome and share price. And as a result of things along those lines, it made horrible compromises. The FAA failed to oversee them because you know, this is some people's interpretation. Of course, I don't know the reality, but that, that that Boeing had the FAA in its pocket, and and here we here we have um, hundreds of people die, and so and and I find it tragic. I mean, the deaths are tragic, and there's a lot of discussion about a loss of faith in institutions in the United States, and there's a lot of research about that, and. I and maybe I'm just naive and stupid, Kevin, but I would like to believe that a company as old and as legendary as Boeing would not have this kind of a moral crisis. And yet here it is. And so on one hand, we have these startups who are trying to found themselves with an intention to have a, a, a set of metrics that it's going to hold itself accountable to that are beyond um, EPS or sales or whatever key growth metrics. Um, but yet at the same time, we have some of our sort of icon companies who are, are disgusting. That, uh, yeah, that is true. And is it just, we're just going to have, is this just a spectrum? We're going to have people on the scale. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, you can't expect, I don't think you can expect anything different. I wish some more uh, people would go to jail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey, just- why don't we talk about healthcare? <laughs> I'll, we'll just get right out of this zebra hole. <laughs> yes. So, I mean, we're, we are living through a, a, a crazy uh, cocoon time in healthcare, are we not? Yeah. I mean, it, all of what we've been talking about, I mean, it does, it, it actually does feed into. So, um, yeah. So, Haymont and, and I, and also with another guy named Steve Clasco, who's the CEO of Jefferson Health in Philadelphia. And um, so we came together and we wrote this book on healthcare. And, uh, um, just as a little story behind the book was, um, so the book is, you know, and we can get farther into that, but it's, you know, it's about how, um, you know, data and AI and all of these things that were starting to, um, you, you know, is going to change the way healthcare is, uh, we experience healthcare and that's been around for a while, but we observed that all of these things were coming together and speeding things up and, and, um, and, and we'll get to this too, but actually tried to, the attempt of this book is literally to create a new category of healthcare that we called health assurance. They literally wanted me to put on our, my play bigger book category design hat and, and forget to this, this hmm. problem. So using a book to design a category. Yeah, exactly. We did that with play bigger. <laughs> We, we did it with play video. We designed the category of category design. And, um, so healthcare uh, assurance, health assurance, health assurance, health, health assurance. And, um, uh, because, and in part, because the word healthcare has become itself this, you know, it is a, a healthcare industrial complex that we think of not really well. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and in, and in reality, and in reality, it's, it's not a healthcare system. It's a sick care system. It's, it's designed to take care of us after something bad happens, not to help us stay healthy. In fact, all the economic incentives are around, you know, doing operations and saving us from, you know, whatever, not about, it's the, the economic incentives are about, aren't about keeping us out of the system, which mm-hmm. is really what we, what we all want, right? I mean, the last thing we want is actually to enter the healthcare system. We want something to keep, and and the whole idea of labeling it health assurance is 
because these technologies, these new services and products um, are increasingly being built to keep us healthy and out of healthcare. And, and that's, that's the new, the new category or these, these products that are actually designed to keep us away from doctors and hospitals and operations and all this other stuff. And, and we can get into that a little bit more, but I was going to tell a story was that um, we had been working on the book for, I don't know, six or eight months or something. And um, we're ready to publish it in February. And uh, I mean, it was literally it was done. It was ready to go. And then this whole COVID thing started to wind up and we went like, oh, maybe we should like hit pause and see what is going to be happening here. And, you know, within a month or so, it was pretty clear. Um, and uh, then we stopped and waited another month or so to see what's happening. It became very clear that like everything we were talking about in the book is just getting like put on, you know, uh, you know, steroids and it's, it, it, during because of COVID and what's happening, you know, it's just accelerating everything. So, um, and if the kinds of things that we ended up writing about in the book, if these health assurance technologies have been in place before COVID happened, interesting things would have happened. I mean, we, you would have been able to see in public health data mm -hmm. um, this thing emerging long before um, it was obvious and, and you would have been able to see the patterns happening as it, as it shifted around the globe in, in, in almost in real time. So, um, we, we ended up redoing the book to reflect all of that. And then finally publishing it in July instead. And, uh, you know, so now it's, now it's just the, got a COVID, a COVID sheen to it. <laughs> and so, uh, am I right in just my personal assessment, and of course, I'm no expert, that we are living at a time of rapid, uh, a rapid set of from twos in, in health like we've never experienced. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, and uh, so, I mean, just look at one, one, one little aspect of it um, was the, the teledoc or video, you know, doctor visit. And um and, and, and you know, it, there's it absolutely makes sense to have that happen in your life, our lives, right? I mean, there's no reason that for most situations, and, and, and there is this, uh, you know, part of the idea here is that uh, uh, there should be this this kind of virtual, semi-automated layer of our healthcare. Call it some call it pre-primary care. Hmm that should exist before you ever have to go and sit in a, in a doctor's office waiting room um, or check yourself into an emergency room or something. And the teledoc thing is just, that's, that's, a, that's just an easy, obvious part of it is we should, you know, you, you're, you feel sick, you have something wrong. You, 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 you know, uh, slammed your ankle in the car door or something like that. I mean, the first stop logically should be, let's get on a video call and, and, and see if it's something worth, treating or if it's something I can go put an ice pack on or take, you know, some over the counter meds and wait out or whatever. As we move to this new model, what percentage of in-person doctor visits, like what, how do the percent, how does it change? If I, if it's a hundred percent in February, when you have a problem, you go see a doctor, where, where does this land over time? Well, it'll be interesting to see, right? Because it's shifted from hundred percent first go to a doctor to a huge percentage of wanting to do video because they don't want to go into the doctor's right. office. It's probably going to slide back some, but 
there's no question that this has driven acceptance of talking to a doctor by video as a first stop. Um, and, you know, and, and the, uh, of course, the, you know, the insurance industry, the medical industry, I mean, they all they were all set up to keep prevent that from happening before because they made money when you went to the doctor and there was no mechanism for reimbursing and whatever else if you went and just talked to somebody for 15 minutes on a video call. So all, all those things had to, to shift, but it, it, it's, it's shifting in large part because the public wants it because we don't want to go sit in a doctor's office in a waiting room with a bunch of other people who might have COVID <laughs> and, and take that risk, right? So, um, it, you know, the, the public demand is, has created, um, it, and that's just, I mean, that's just a sliver of right. things that were starting before COVID that were there, but weren't, didn't have, you know, a huge amount of acceptance and, and were in fact, in some way being blocked by the medical establishment that now have been broken free and will become part of the way we deal with our health from now on. Well, and it's, I think about how far and wide this is going. I mean, um, Apple's most recent announcements, as I just read through the new feature sets for the watch, so many of them are health oriented. Mm -hmm. Right. And what's that going to mean for humankind over time when essentially you have a IoT device on you at all times that's measuring things and respond, you know, so it's essentially got a bunch of sensors and it's it's reading things and it's telling you things and it's capturing data and it's getting what's normal for you and then it's able to put that in a database against everyone else and say what's normal for all of us and then it's able to get um, the you know thing that gets people excited to the point on machine learning and artificial intelligence is how proactive can technology be in this regard that says hey um you know you're 32 years old and these things are emerging and based on these data the these this this set of data uh, we recommend these changes to your lifestyle your diet your exercise whatever it is uh maybe incorporates your family history as well because you 23 and mead yourself uh, and so there's all these potential data sources that your data gets measured and against and can come back with some forward-leaning projections and therefore recommendations on things you could do to improve your well-being. Am I, am I getting this right? You're not even going far enough. Okay. I mean, you're, you're, you're right and not even, not quite even. So, so take me where this of, goes, oh, Zen yeah. master. <laughs> so take, take the pieces, of your, some of the pieces you were just talking about. So yeah, so you get, you know, now it's cheap to get a genetic test. So you got your genetic, you know, your database, your DNA history and all that. And medical records are increasingly digital. So, you know, your past, every, you know, every x-ray that's ever been taken, whatever can all go into, don't, and this doesn't exist yet, but it is being built. I can tell you by companies in, in Silicon Valley, the idea that there is this data repository that you own your data um, and you can pull it in from all these different sources and, and, and have your health data in one place. So all of those things, plus you're starting to, um, you know, you're, like you say, you're wearing your Apple Watch or your Fitbit or whatever else. It's starting to get, you know, have these patterns that are starting to, to, to come in. And then, you know, add to that, if you have, let's say you have any kind of a chronic condition or something and, and have a specialized, um, you know, device to watch that, let's say you're diabetic and you have a, um, a wireless uh, glucose reader that can, you know, keep your track your, um, your, your blood level, sugar levels, and sending that to the, on top of all of this, 
um, you know, sleep, fitness, all these things. Weight, of course, you don't have to get at some point. Do you have to get on a scale? This thing just tells you how fat you are, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> so, so if you if if you can have all all of that data flowing through an AI, and that AI can start to understand your individual health and 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 understand your particular patterns, um, then it can be extremely proactive. This is actually what the whole health assurance idea gets to is that it can be extremely proactive and, and actually recognize that, um, uh, Hey, it seems like something is happening. That's problematic. Um, you know, I, I see your sleep is down to four hours a night and, um, your, your, uh, heart rate is, seems to be different your blood pressure and, uh, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it, it adds up to a possibility that this is, you know, a, uh, you know, some particular medical problem. And if you do this and this and this, you could might be able to forestall it. It's that kind of idea that would um, increasingly be a proactive way to stay healthier and out of, you know, out of the doctor's office. Um, and, and, the, and there is absolutely no reason that's not, that can't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, all the pieces of it are coming together and, uh, and, and, you know, lots of companies see it, they're going that way. They're either, you know, the whole thrash of startups these days are either making the devices to take those readings, making the data analytics to, to figure them out, um, doing verticals like, well, like Livongo company we've talked about before mm-hmm. that um, is specifically aimed at diabetes or a company like Roe, which has started out as a, you know, rectal dysfunction and now has moved to other chronic things like hypertension and, and menopause and how you, you treat all those things. So companies are coming up, another company called MindStrong, which is uh, all about mental health, and it's coming at it from a different direction. But they're all seeing it, and it's just it's just all starting to come together and is really going to change the way, it's going to change the way we all experience healthcare and the way we deal with our own health. And it, and it will finally radically, it should finally radically change the cost curve of, because if we can take care of our health through software, that's a lot cheaper than you know the sort of the the scarcity of doctors and hospital beds and all of those other things, um, and uh, and it just becomes cheaper to take care of a large population uh, with healthcare in that in that regard. So, uh, I mean, I'm feeling I feel pretty. There's been all this conversation for decades, right, about how do we fix healthcare, but the reason it hasn't happened is because it's just been about turning some knobs on the old system. And this is actually in our parlance, Chris, is this is creating a new category to sit alongside of and, 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 and take essentially take some of the economics out of the old category. It's, it's incremental versus exponential, right? Right. We finally said right. enough with incremental on the old system. Is that, that what yep. you're telling me? Yeah. 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 And all these things, all the, all the political discussions about, you know, Medicare for all or whatever else, those are just conversations about how to pay for the old way. They're not conversations about a change anything. Um, and, uh, and so if we can, you know, if we can, as a, you know, as a society around the world, make this health assurance idea come to fruition. Yeah. Then it becomes an exponential change. It's, it's a, it's the difference between, you know, between having zoom and having to go to a meeting in person. Yeah. Now, uh, this is all triggering a few things that I just want to sort of um, uh, play play with with you. So, 
um, first sort of aha. I found myself in a couple of startup discussions of late, uh, and one in particular, and I can't describe the specifics because it's totally inappropriate, but in a general level, this is a native digital startup that thought what it was doing was creating a new category that would help makers of physical products sell their physical products digitally, particularly in a world where stores and shopping centers, not so much for maybe quite quite some more time, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what they thought they were doing. As they started to work on what they were doing, uh, this aha started to emerge. It's inverted. What the real opportunity is, is to create digital versions of these physical products that can be used in a digital way. And I, I know, I, I, I wish I could be, but I can't be specific. And that you could imagine over time, certain kinds of uh, industries that are physical products today are at least hybrid digital products in a meaningful way, if not completely digital. I'll give you an example, maybe that'll make it concrete. If you look at what's going on with auto manufacturers, BMW right now wants you to subscribe to a service, an in-car service. That's your GPS, that's your entertainment system, that's your heat warmers and coolers, that it's all this shit, right? So they're trying to move to what we in the software business would call a SaaS model, right? A reoccurring revenue model. And just like Tesla's already able to do, then they can download new features and improve the software, which improves the driving experience. But it also gives them ongoing revenue in a data flywheel. Now, so that's the digitization of a physical product. There could be a scenario that says BMW will sell digital BMWs for people to put in TikTok videos or using some games or who the hell knows what with, right? Um, and you could imagine limited edition M blah, blah, blahs of such and such and serial numbers of this and that. Or, you know, you, you can imagine a world where BMW drives a lot of revenue from A, selling cars the way they do today, B, subscription service because they've digitized the physical product, and C, selling digital BMWs for one application or another. Mm -hmm. So if you sort of if you sort of wrap my head around that and say what that means is that almost all physical products, at least in a hybrid way, if not in a complete way, end up being digital products as well. If you accept that as a possibility, and then you accept Joe Pine's statement, the genius, if it can be digitized, it can be customized. Mm -hmm. So with all that sort of said, is that where we're leading to as a, digit as a digitally customizable wellness paradigm category here? It, it, well, yeah, I think that's, that's true. Um, and so the, yeah, the idea is that these digital products become as familiar, to, uh, uh, with, you know, with you and your health as the, as the, you know, the small town family doctor used to be, mm -hmm. who would actually know you and have, you know, seen you growing up and everything else. Right. Um, and, and, um, and be as available because it's in your pocket. So it's, it, it knows you, it knows what's going on. It can, 
communicate with you or you with it at any particular time. So yes, I mean, and, and of course, customizable in the sense that, that you can tell it that like, okay, well, my, my goal is I need to, I need to lose 20 pounds this year. Um, and, uh, you sure don't look and, like and you need to, <laughs> I, I wasn't referring to my, myself, but you know, it, so it is, you know, it is yeah, definitely customizable. You can make it, you can have it, have this, you know, help you do whatever it is that you are, you know, your goal is to do with your health. The flip side of that, um, which is gets to even like a BMW example, right? Because BMW, let's say it digitizes the car and it's going to have a lot of information about you as the individual driver and maybe can, you know, sell particular things to you and, or help you drive whatever it does. I don't know, but, but also BMW, right. Would have a it would ladder up to, they would have data from all of the BMWs and have this sort of population data that would help them understand better about what to build in their next model car or who knows what. Right. And so similarly in healthcare, as you have all this intricate data about individuals, an anonymized version of that could become the greatest population yes. health uh, tool that has ever been ex existed. I mean, it would literally be a real-time map of the world's health at any given time and, and seeing patterns. And again, go back to the COVID example, you know, being able to spot that there are these, you know, hotspots growing here or there, something weird is happening. We better check it out. It, you know, much faster than automated than contact today. tracing, essentially. Right. True. Right. 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 And then, of course, um, this automatically gets to it freaks everyone out, including myself, on privacy and security and government and freedom and, and all of that good stuff. It's like uh, I'm, I'm terrified by how much Apple and Google and all of them, Amazon, know about all of us already, uh, never mind the government itself. Right. Uh, so yeah. there, there's that. But of course, the flip side of that is um, <laughs> it's kind of the new reality, dude. Um, it's just it's right. just and is we are on this trajectory and we're not getting off it. I mean, and so get get over it. Is that sort of how do you think about well, it? <laughs> well, 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 yes, I, I I agree with that. So either you decide you're going to be on the grid or off the grid. I mean, it's like I'm sure there's a certain population that's going to say I'm never going to get that information, and it's hard to be that. off the grid. And it's hard to be off the grid. So then, um, then the you know going back to actually the early discussion we were having in this conversation about conscious capitalism or behaving well or whatever else, that's a good argument for why that becomes so important because. Um, because, because trust that this company is going to operate, w behave well and, 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 uh, protect me and do the right thing that becomes paramount. And, you know, I, I mean, how you, you operate like a Facebook is operating. How many people are increasingly going to say, well, you know, fuck them. I'm not going to, you know, give them my information. I don't trust what they're going to do with it. Right. So it's, it becomes a competitive advantage to build that sense of trust and responsibility. Yeah, you look at a company, by way of example, Microsoft, um, and even in the, the, I would call it the lost years, <laughs> <laughs> when they weren't uh, designing or dominating really any new categories of, of consequence, and even though they were still growing phenomenally, they they weren't relevant from a where the industry's going perspective. But of course, now they've produced one of the most 
maybe it's not true a true turnaround because it wasn't in the tank but i mean what they've achieved is extraordinary but yep. long story longer i think most people would say facebook microsoft I, I trust microsoft more than i trust facebook yeah i would agree i think the same thing's probably fairly true about apple do most of us yep. who have iphones or macs are we worried uh, we should probably always be worried but when you see their leader, you see Tim Cook get up and you see their leadership and you see what they're doing and you see how they behave when shit gets weird or you kind of go, well, I don't know if they're perfect. And I'm sure there's lots to criticize, but on balance, Microsoft, Apple, I kind of trust these companies. I'd say the same for Google, mm -hmm. you know, and they've done wrong things and there's been breaches and they're not perfect. And we can argue about do no evil. And yeah, I'm not being Pollyanna-ish about shit. But on balance, our behavior as a society, as consumers, suggests that we trust companies like Apple and Google and Microsoft. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and look, I mean, Apple's very smartly embarked on this ad campaign lately about, you know, protecting your privacy and you can trust us and all that kind of stuff. And um, I, I think there's a reason. It's, 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 become, it's become an important part of uh, you know, what, what, um, makes a consumer want to engage with a company yeah. at, the, at this stage. Now from a new category and growth perspective, I'm curious, do, do, do you see giant new niches that ultimately become giant categories that support new companies and new category Queens and Kings, or do you see more of, you know, existing players like the ones we've been talking about and some others that, that lead here and, Le less innovation from startups or how does this sort of look like it might play out in, in healthcare or just generally no let's let's stick in healthcare because that's what you know you've been focused on well in healthcare it's a classic innovators dilemma for the incumbents um you know they they make all this money off of doing it the old way and um and, and uh you know doing it the new way these these sort of you know digital services and um you you know are, are classic Again, classic innovators love it. You make less money, it's less plus margins. It's, but that's what makes it attractive to users because it costs less and it's easier to use and all of that. And so, I, I mean, I don't. The, the incumbents are the big incumbents will you know use some of these services. They may buy some of these guys, but I think we're talking about a classic case of the newcomers, um, you know, being able to do something the incumbents just can't embrace they can't do it so i you know i watched i watched this happen in real time as a newspaper guy for you know big chunk of my career and you know once the craigslists and the di digital you know news operations and everything else to get going i mean the, the newspapers were stuck in the fact that they you know if they sold print ads it was worth 100 times more than a digital ad so they couldn't move and eventually they just you know get turned over and it's funny so. how long it takes for them to figure out I, I, i'm reminded of this story i used to know this guy i think he's retired now but um he was at in the in the golden days of the technology industry he was at a time-sharing company if you go all the way back to that oh yeah 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 and he was on the executive team and they were in they were in cupertino and he said he can literally remember being in a management meeting where the CEO and other leaders were arguing that 
the personal computer was sort of a fad and it was never really going to go to be a very big popular thing or this and that and the other. And he said, I was literally, as they're talking, I'm looking out the window at the cranes <laughs> building what at the time was the new Apple, you know, this is in Rev 1 of Apple. And he's like... I think I need to, I think I need to quit. Right. And, and, and he did. And so it, it's sort of hysterical where like they're building the Apple campus next to you. This is the company that's the future. And you're still going, ah, oh, this is going to be bullshit. <laughs> yep. It happens over and over again. Right. I actually, by the way, an old story, I, I, um, you know, I, I was, uh, at USA today for lots and lots of years. And I was that, you know, for like almost two decades was a technology columnist. And you were the man. So I was, I was, I was in the middle of all this, seeing all this stuff happen. So it's 2001, you know, a lot has happened by 2001, right? right? The dot-com bubble is blowing up at this point. So it's 2001 and the, uh, the Gannett, which owned USA Today, right? So the Gannett board decides to have me come and do a presentation about, um, what's going on in the digital you know realm and what the future of newspapers are or whatever and i i will never forget at, i you know I, I finished and there's some some conversation and the ceo at the time says wow i can envision a day when a news operation doesn't have printing presses <laughs> like <laughs> oh my god it's, okay we're really on top of this um and uh so you know yeah that i don't know why it just takes so long when you're in the middle of something like that to, to make that realization it's like podcasts and radio you know howard stern shat is, is shat the appropriate uh, <laughs> i'm sure it's in the dictionary you're you're the writer because <laughs> shitted shitted doesn't sound right shat sounds more proper <laughs> So, but Howard Stern shat on podcasts for, uh, for decades and, uh, Spotify just bought Joe Rogan for a hundred million bucks <laughs> and they paid, I forget what the number is now, but Amy Schumer, a giant deal and, you know, lots of other, I mean, you know, and Stitcher doing stuff and, and NPR spending, I mean, NPR is dominating in podcasts. New York times is dominating in podcasts because they moved yeah. and there's a lot of independence. I mean, that's the other thing, of course, that I love about it is. You know, an independent podcaster can be downloaded in 181 countries, and and away you go. And um, so all, yeah. all that stuff is pretty, pretty cool. And yet, people still, you know, it's like the thing that's driving me crazy with these presidential debates, right? Two minutes for this and 30 seconds response. Well, that's asinine. Mm -hmm. And on a podcast, time is kind of free. So why wouldn't you have a two, three, four hour podcast debate with no interruptions yeah. right yeah. use the Just right medium for authentic conversation but i digress yeah. <laughs> no i that, i mean actually i hadn't thought about that but that would actually be a brilliant way to do the debates is just just uh let it have it be a conversation that goes on for that's right and i'm happy to, to uh to moderate if they want me to i i'm not a member of either party um, and I, and I, I'm country first and I don't have a, I'm a man with no party, but regardless of who moderates it, um, it, it you know, the thing that drives me the craziest, I watch these political shows, right. And they'll be getting into some meaty topic on some panel or whatever. And then, and then the host will say, well, Susan, I'm sorry. We're just going to have to leave it there. I'm like, what do you mean leave it there? We're just, we're just talking about healthcare. We're just talking about 
guns or we're talking about the virus or the economy or something important. And she just said something incredibly insightful. Well, why don't we get into it? We're just going to have to leave it there because we got to <laughs> sell some Clorox and shit. Um, yeah, yeah. That's not the case in a podcast. We don't have to leave it there. You know, yeah. uh, we just had Bruce Filer on this in- incredible, gigantic writer. Um, he's got this new book out called Life is in the Transitions. He's incredible. And, you know, he's been on all these shows, right? He's a giant celebrity in this self-help kind of world. And uh, he just, he, he was just, he couldn't get over the fact that he could come on my podcast and we, we didn't have to rush through anything. Mm-hmm. Like we would actually fucking talk about something of consequence and get into it. Right, right. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I remember doing, well, we digressing all over the place, but I remember, you know, doing like, you know, like uh, for, you know, book promotions and things like that and you get some slot on a, a quick interview on cnbc or something like that and you know and having to like think like how am i going to i i have i have basically 60 seconds to try to tell people what this thing is about like and having to work that out i mean that's crazy there's no reason well and the exciting thing to me about podcasts and the exciting thing to me about whether you want to call it user-generated content or citizen journalism or the fact that you can have independent bloggers who are incredible, independent writers, w- whatever form they choose, who who built incredible careers. The new technology has sort of given us all ADHD. But uh, on the other hand, whether it's medium or podcasting or other, l- let's just call it ability to create and distribute long form content is sort of the yin to the yang. And, and I find that heartwarming. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting what's going on. I don't know. Um, yeah, the we have long, long form uh, news. It seems to be out, but book sales are as good as they've ever been, um, which is interesting, so, right? Interesting. I don't really, and, and it's physical books. People are have uh, turned back to paper books. Yeah, and I mean, we have authors on this podcast like yourself who've sold zillions of copies. I mean stunning numbers of books yeah and i mean i don't want to get into anything inappropriate or specific because i'm probably we're probably contractually not allowed to but, but i can't believe how much we sold how much play bigger we've sold I mean, fucking yeah. a yeah you know it's a somewhat niche um management strategy marketing book right i mean it's mm-hmm. not you could argue the market for it is not massive it's it's it, there is a real market but it's not like you know, the market for the next J.K. Rowling book or something, right? Or Stephen King or or even some broad, broad management book, maybe. I don't know. Well, I mean, you could you could argue that Good to Great was the same and Good to Great sold, I don't know, what, or five, ten million copies or something like that of that book. I mean, it's uh, it's obviously reached an audience that's far beyond just corporate executives trying to figure out how to run a company. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't know what we, I don't know what we touched, but we touched something. We touched something. Yeah. yeah. And I think you're touching something um really powerful with um these healthcare ideas. And it seems like yeah. we we sort of how do I want to say this? Uh, time's up on the old paradigm. It's time for the new yeah. categories, right? No, that's true, right? And as and as we've seen with you know in it, over and over with category creation. I mean there's there comes a time when it feels like it's time for that category to be there right there's a day where you say driving to blockbusters dumb right and uh um 
and when you and when you realize like you could be sitting with a company that's you know trying to create that new category and when the realization is that whatever this company is doing has to exist in the world whether this company does it or not then you know that there's like a real category there it's funny i've been having that feeling a lot like i sit there with an entrepreneur and they're telling me their thing and we're going through it and i start to i start to stand in the future and say mm-hmm. is this category of thing likely to be a category in x period of time and i sort of go to that same place where if you go i can see a world where this is true you know like one mm-hmm. of my favorite sort of party tricks is name me something that's not going to be connected to the internet that there, there's things this desk yeah. might not be connected to the internet this carpet mm-hmm. might not be connected to the internet but then again, then again, it might. <laughs> we didn't think doorbells needed to be connected to the internet, did we? That's right. No. So, and uh, a buddy of mine's working on a very impressive company that that sort of pulls together a whole set of sensor and IoT data, and is really, you know, transforming in an exponential way how farming can work. Now, mm-hmm. to your point, is this particular company going to figure the things out and to optimize based on the this and that and the historical data and then all this stuff about how to manage a crop more powerfully and effectively? Is this going to be the company? I don't know. But to your point, if you roll the clock forward five, 10 years, will there be a set of category dominating companies that have digitally enabled farming in a way that some of which we can imagine, some of which we can't? I think that's probably going to happen. We live in interesting times, Mr. Lockhart. Oh, how do you see us getting out of this mess that we're in? Uh, you know, I just had an interesting conversation with somebody. You know, something that I that I, I have never seen, you know, really written about or discussed by historians or anything. It's like, so how long does it take the public to forget? Mm. And so, like, like I'd love to go back to um, the post-polio vaccine. How long did it take? people to start feeling like it's safe to send their kids back to the, the local pool and everything. It couldn't have been, it couldn't have been like, Oh, the vaccine's out. It's all safe. Now, you know, we, let's have a party and, uh, you know, uh, parade in the street and say it's over like, like at the end of a war and, or in the 1918 global pandemic, you know, um, how long after it was declared that, you know, that, well, this thing is essentially over, did it take people to feel like, okay, you know, we can go back to life as we lived it before. I just don't know. I don't know the answer. I've never seen anything really about it. So you you fired up a thought in my head and I had seen this in the past and it turns out there's some new new data about this. So how long does it take us to forget? Now, this is not about a virus, but this one knocks me over. This is a headline in USA Today, September 16th, 2020. Almost two-thirds of millennials, Gen Z, don't know that six million Jews were killed in the Holocaust, survey says. What, what? <laughs> they, don't, they don't know what Auschwitz is. They, they, they don't uh-huh, even know right. that there was a Holocaust. So. But of course, that, that's, that, that's, a, that's a failure of education and history because they didn't live through, like they didn't live through it and then they're they have to forget it and then move on right i mean i i agree i mean i agree it's it's egregious that that's the case well and to your point look at all the stupidity about masks 
yeah. or the fact I've read I've read reports. I can Google it as we're talking, but I've read reports that say rough and tough. Maybe a quarter of Americans won't take a vaccine when it's available because yeah. they think v- vaccines are a government control system, or they cause fill in the blank, or or whatever the whatever it is they think. Right. Right. I mean, we have these diseases coming back, these infectious diseases coming back because Americans won't get vaccinated because they're anti-vaxxers. Mm-hmm. I have a proposal, actually. I think all the anti-vaxxers and all the anti-maskers should be given unlimited lifetime capabilities to go on uh, cruise ship lines. <laughs> as a as a team they can just all get together and uh-huh. i will pay extra taxes and i'm sure many others will <laughs> and they can go on a cruise ship just for them anytime they want uh-huh. Uh-huh. New, <laughs> new, less, less of a population of anti-vaxxers new category idea <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> well hey i would also be all all for the uh, some policy that says okay well you can refuse a vaccine but then if you get that disease you, your health care is not paid for that's got to be right yeah i mean you want to talk about personal responsibility there's a responsibility for your actions if you and i god forbid mm-hmm. get into a horrible car accident and we're, we're responsible for taking somebody's life we are responsible for that action there are consequences in a society when you take actions um, by yourself that negatively, adversely damage or or kill other people. Yep. So uh, why wouldn't there be in this case? Yeah. The other one I love, this is just a side note. The government can't tell me what to wear. Oh, really? One word for you. You ready? Pants. <laughs> <laughs> i don't know you live in santa cruz do you have to wear pants in santa cruz um here you'd probably you'd definitely be raising an eyebrow um <laughs> for sure and i think a large part would be where you're not wearing the pants like what part of the town are you not wearing the pants and what are you doing <laughs> while you're not wearing the pants so there are spots where in the right spot doing the quote unquote right thing, whatever that is, you might be able to get away with it. But here's what I do know. Uh, you can't pick up your child at school in Santa Cruz unless <laughs> no, you have pants on. <laughs> I'm pretty sure about that one. I'm probably pretty sure. About pretty that sure walking down one of the main streets, downtown Santa Cruz. Uh, pretty sure that would be a no, no. And so the government can't tell me what to wear. My response, pants. <laughs> government tells us what to do that's all a, over the place that's exactly now look if you that's don't exactly. want to wear pants in your house we're still free in our house and there are times truth be told i don't wear pants in my house <laughs> and if you don't want to wear a mask in your house you don't have to wear a mask in your house but you know. by the way i love that thing and, and you didn't make it shareable remember the thing you wrote about masks and farts yeah so could you just summarize that thinking for me? <laughs> I I believe there is a a a, a, symb- a symbiosis between uh, uh, when you should wear a mask and when you should feel free to fart. I just you know, and it, so if you think about it, it's like okay, if you're walking outside and nobody else is around and you're by yourself, of course you can fart. You know, of course you can leave your mask off. <laughs> 
if you happen to be walking outside and you encounter a group of five friends and you're all going to be standing around in a little circle, well, you might not want to fart. You might not want to put your mask on. Driving around in your car by yourself, leave your mask off or fart, whatever you want to, in your house, nobody else around. But, you know, if you're in your house and your 83-year-old mother shows up, yeah, you know, you might want to put your mask on. Uh, depends on what your mother's like, but <laughs> probably not going to fart in front of mom. So, you know, if the CDC is having trouble, I, I offered this. I mean, in the post, I offered it you know, up to the CDC. I, they didn't take me up on it. But if they're having trouble explaining to people when you should wear a mask, just say, just remember when it's appropriate to fart or not. So if and, I can fart, I don't need a mask. And if right. I can't fart, I need a mask. That's that's pretty much cut and dry. Maybe we should have T-shirts made or bumper stickers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Fart. waiting for the call from Dr. Fauci. No mask. So, yeah. <laughs> no fart mask. It's, it's, it'll be forever known as the Maney mask rule. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This, this is what I'm going to end up being known for the rest of my you know. This days. will be your contribution to society. <laughs> exactly. All right, Senator Maney, anything else you want to touch on? No, it's just been a pleasure to talk to you again. It's too long yeah. between times. I miss you and I love you. I'm excited about this new work. I'm excited about your work as a category designer. Um, I love everything you write. <laughs> thanks, thanks. And I, 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 you know, I mean, I love working together and looking forward to more of that. Absolutely. All this madness ends. Thank you, brother. Thanks again. Well, there he is, my buddy, brother from another mother, Kevin Maney. I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And if you did, why not share it with somebody who you think will love it too? Now, you may recall on episode uh, 186 of Follow Your Different, we had on Naveen Chada, uh, who's the leader of Mayfield, one of the top uh, venture funds in Silicon Valley. After that conversation, or after that episode, uh, Naveen and his team and I had some conversations and something very cool came out of that. So I'm proud to announce that we're collaborating on a new podcast series called Conscious VC. And we have some legendary guests who joined Naveen and I, people like uh, Radical Candor author Kim Scott and education pioneer and the founder of the Khan Academy, Sal Khan. And our goal is to have real conversations, surprise, surprise, that explore how to build businesses that shape the future while making a giant difference at the same time. So check out Conscious VC on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you get legendary podcasts. All right. We'd like to thank, of course, my brother, Kevin Maney. Visit kevinmaney.com or to or check out categorydesignadvisors.com. Uh, and remember, his new book is out called Unhealthcare. Uh, my, my friends at OneLifeFullyLived.org help you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check them out, OneLifeFullyLived.org. And uh, speaking of marketing and category design, if you care about that stuff, check out the number one charting marketing podcast, Lockhead on Marketing. It's different. <laughs> my friends at Bottleneck Virtual Assistants want to help scale you with the power of a distant assistant. Check out Bottleneck.online. And if you're a thought leader and you want to get your leading thoughts on some podcasts, my friends at Interview Valet will get you set up. They do a legendary job. Spiro.ia.ai is the new way to get business done. It's a, a, a whole new proactive 
way to leverage machine learning to close more business for salespeople and sales managers. Check out SPIRO.ai. My friends at Autranet have been building legendary B2B 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 websites <laughs> in Silicon Valley for over 25 years. Check out ATRE.NET and Autranet will help you conquer your category. Today's a great time uh, to make a difference if you can. So reach into your uh, pocket and send some money to a charity that you uh, believe in today. All right. I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. And this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. Uh, all rights do remain perturbed. Warning. Clearly, the creators of this podcast may have been consuming libations. We are produced and edited by the legendary Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do technical execution and Lockhead.com. Show notes by Diane Gervasio. Remember to spread viruses. <laughs> Don't spread viruses. Spread podcasts, not viruses. Remember to vote. God bless the notorious RBG. Thank you so much for your contributions. We will miss you. Thank you, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Marcus Rust, CEO of Roseacre Farms. Sorry, Marky. We just ran out of time for you. That's it. Please be safe. Take good care of yourself and everyone else. Be legendary. And until we're together again, follow your difference.